it took four days to find the body. By then, it was beyond recognition. The 800-foot drop from a helicopter had left it a broken mess, and the steaming jungle heat had taken its toll, as had various jungle animals, including a pack of wild pigs. Not many saw the body, but some suggested that its head, hands, and genitalia were missing. Consumed by the wild pigs, perhaps, or bizarrely, removed before the body even appeared in the jungle. The corpse had to be identified by a molar found on the scene. It was Michael de Guzman. Guzman was the project manager at the Busang mining site in Indonesia, which, at the time, was thought to be one of the world's largest deposits of gold. In just a few short years, Busang had made Guzman and the other executives of mining company Bree-X Minerals fantastically wealthy. But now, the project manager was dead. Officially, it was a suicide, but there remains the possibility that Guzman didn't choose to kill himself. It could have been murder or something even stranger. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. Last week, we started our discussion of Bree-X, a Canadian company responsible for the largest, most elaborate mining fraud in history. After the company's executives reported the existence of a massive gold deposit at their site in Indonesia, share prices skyrocketed from mere pennies to nearly $300 a share. Unbeknownst to investors, Bree-X had manipulated their geological samples and the company hadn't discovered a single ounce of gold. This week, we'll explore how the Bree-X fraud was exposed, the mysterious death of one of its architects, and the search for justice from the company's many victims. From the day that Bree-X purchased the site at Busang in Indonesia, plenty of red flags indicated that something was wrong. There were stark irregularities in the company's method for collecting samples and in the samples themselves. Even more suspiciously, other companies had assayed the Busang mine many times before without yielding a single nugget of gold. Yet, Bree-X claimed that they had struck pay dirt where everyone else had come up empty. Something didn't quite add up. It all seemed too good to be true. But despite these warning signs, the promise of gold buried deep within the jungle proved too strong to resist. 
by 1997, BreeX was worth billions, and all the experts agreed that the site was likely the largest gold mine in the world. Everyone got carried away with excitement about Bu Sang's potential. The Barrick Gold Corporation was one of many companies hoping to cash in on the gold rush. The previous year, they had tried to partner with BreeX, or even take them over, depending on who you asked. At that time, Barrick's geologists looked over some of BreeX's samples, presumably ones which had not been tampered with, and were unable to find evidence of gold. When Barrick's CEO, Peter Monk, learned this, he reportedly screamed at his deputies, do some more tests, figure it out. I know it's there, okay? You confirm it's there. In truth, there was nothing for Barrick's geologists to find. The site had never contained gold. BreeX had managed to delay any real digging for years in order to conceal that fact. But sooner or later, the promised gold at Busang would need to be extracted. It was, after all, supposed to be a mine. To properly develop Busang, BreeX had agreed to share exploitation of the site with Freeport McMoran, a much larger American mining company. As part of its due diligence, Freeport took its own samples at the site, samples which inevitably would show that there was no gold at Busang. Perhaps knowing that the fraud would soon be exposed, the executives at BreeX decided it was time to cash out. In the months leading up to the release of Freeport's due diligence report, BreeX CEO David Walsh sold $5.5 million in company stock. His wife, Jeanette, sold another $20.6 million. The company's vice president, geologist John Felderhoff, sold $26.5 million worth of stock. Michael de Guzman, too, apparently cashed in for millions. The Brie X executives were able to keep these cash outs under the radar because they had cleverly used a private stock system with relatively lax disclosure requirements. It's clear that Walsh, Felderhoff, and Guzman all took advantage of this private system to engage in insider trading. They used non-public information about the company, that it was all a big sham, for instance, to steal millions before the truth was exposed. Incredibly, their ill-gotten wealth helped shield them from any criticism or scrutiny about how they became so wealthy in the first place. As one Canadian paper remarked at the time, if David Walsh and John Felderhoff were already not so rich as to be practically above suspicion, more complaints might be heard about their offhand approach to corporate disclosure and insider trading. Nevertheless, the swindlers didn't rest easy. They must have known someone would soon have to pay the piper. Richard Behar, one of the few reporters allowed into Busang during the BreeX mania, picked up on some of this tension. While Behar was meeting with Felderhoff in Jakarta, Guzman barged in unannounced. Behar congratulated Guzman on the recently announced partnership with Freeport. After a year of gridlock while Indonesian dictator Suharto withheld the exploration permit, 
Guzman could finally get back to digging up the gold. Though he should have been excited to break ground, he seemed to be anything but. Behar described his demeanor as stone-cold, grim, icy, and wrote that it was clear Guzman wanted to talk to Felderhoff alone. Behar didn't get to hear what Guzman discussed with Felderhoff, but it's entirely possible that Guzman saw the writing on the wall and told Felderhoff they had to do something to keep the truth from getting out and fast. What happened next certainly suggests that the schemers at Brie-X were desperately trying to cover their tracks before the fraud was exposed. A fire broke out at Busang. Brie-X declared the blaze an accident, but the timing was suspiciously convenient. The fire completely burned down the site's administration office, which contained the company's visible gold samples and Michael de Guzman's geology records. It's difficult to dismiss that as a mere coincidence. It seems someone was deliberately trying to get smoke in Freeport's eyes. There were other signs that something nefarious was going on at Busang. For example, reporter Richard Behar and a visiting geologist panned for gold in a creek on the site, but didn't find anything. The geologist remarked that it was odd that they couldn't pan any gold at the world's largest gold deposit. As it turned out, odd was an understatement. In March, the bottom fell out of the entire scheme. Freeport McMoran concluded its due diligence and determined that there was, in their words, an insignificant amount of gold at Busang. The reckoning that Brie-X executives had been delaying for months was finally upon them. At the time, Guzman was in Toronto for a mining conference. Pressed to explain the discrepancy between Freeport's analysis and his own, Guzman had nothing to say for himself. Meanwhile, at that same conference, Felderhoff was named Prospector of the Year. After Freeport revealed that it had not been able to find gold at Busang, rumors began circulating that Brie-X's samples had been salted. As we discussed last week, salting is a mining con where foreign gold or silver is added to an ore sample to manipulate assay results and make the mine seem more valuable than it is. The initial reaction to the rumors of fraud was, of course, denial. Barrick CEO Peter Monk told Fortune magazine, I don't believe that those guys salted the mine. You couldn't have fooled that many analysts for that long. This is the same man who, when shown that Brie-X's samples didn't point to a major gold deposit, refused to even consider the possibility. After Barrick had failed in its bid to partner with Brie-X, Monk could have enjoyed seeing a competitor stumble. Yet he too had become a Busang devotee. Or maybe he just couldn't admit that he had been fooled as well. As the chief executive officer of one of the largest gold mining companies in the world, one would think he'd have known better. But he was far from the only one who still couldn't see the truth, even when it was staring him right in the face. 
Many financial analysts dismissed the salting rumors and disputed Freeport's due diligence reports. They had been championing Brie-X too eagerly and for too long to suddenly change course now. Toronto's Gordon Capital Corporation issued a release which stated, Quality of Busang asset not in question. Buy this undervalued asset. We maintain our belief that the Busang gold deposit will become a world-class gold mine. Egizio Bianchini, an analyst at investment management firm Nesbit Burns, had once reassured investors that he had seen the gold at Busang itself, which we know, of course, is impossible. He called Busang one of the great gold discoveries of our generation. Bianchini said the rumors of fraud were so preposterous, I am not even going to address the possibility. The gold is there. The mad dash to defend Brie-X led analysts to hurl wild accusations at Freeport, the company raining on everyone's parade. Freeport was accused of performing faulty testing, or even of intentionally misleading investors to drive down Briex's stock for a hostile takeover. No one could believe the simple yet mind-boggling truth. Briex had pulled the wool over the whole world's eyes. Coming up, Analysts double down on Brie-X until the company's facade begins to crack. Now, back to the story. By 1997, Brie-X's executives had made millions by committing the largest mining fraud in history, fooling even the industry's leading experts. While the scope of the Brie-X scam was unprecedented, Financial analysts' reaction to it was anything but. Despite the damning Freeport Assay report and rumors that Briax was a scam, analysts at first remained bullish. This hopeful stance was particularly common for sell-side analysts, those who helped bring new companies to the stock market. According to consulting firm McKinsey & Company, sell-side analysts are typically over-optimistic, slow to revise their forecasts, and prone to making increasingly inaccurate forecasts when economic growth declined. In fact, analysts make about nine times as many buy recommendations on stocks as sell recommendations. Analysts can afford to be cavalier with their recommendations because their own money is usually not on the line. Rather, according to reporter Jason Kirby, analysts are often paid based on the trading commissions generated by their research, so it's in their interest to encourage people to buy a stock. And even when they're proven to be dead wrong, as was the case with Brie-X, there are few consequences to their mistakes. Egizio Bianchini, the analyst who insisted he had seen the gold at Busang himself, not only kept his job at Nesbit Burns in the aftermath of the Briex scandal, he was later promoted. Like Bianchini, many other analysts and executives who defended Briex up until the bitter end still managed to keep their jobs in the mining industry.
besides the lack of consequences for making mistakes, another reason why bad bets like BreeX can become so wildly popular is the effect of a herd mentality. According to a study performed by the University of Leeds, people's judgments tend to group together, a little like cattle or sheep. And in the way that one sheepdog can direct an entire herd, even a minority opinion of just 5% can influence the other 95, without the majority even being aware of it. Furthermore, the larger the crowd, the fewer the number of leaders that are willing to buck the group. So when every other analyst recommends that investors buy a stock like BreeX, it becomes increasingly unlikely any one person will break from the herd. According to Jason Kirby, analysts are often reluctant to admit they missed a fraud because, after researching a stock faithfully for years, admitting there are problems means acknowledging not only that you missed them and unwittingly misled investors, but that all that time and effort was wasted. BreeX CEO David Walsh also refused to admit to making any mistakes. The day that Freeport announced its disastrous results, reporters asked Walsh for comment outside the company's headquarters in Calgary. Walsh told them, We'll be exonerated, and the property will stand as we have indicated. In response to the rumors of fraud, Walsh categorically denied any wrongdoing and explained that it was differences in testing methods that had led to Freeport's damning assay report. It seemed that either Walsh had been taken in by the scam along with everyone else, or he was just a very convincing liar. But even Walsh's silver tongue couldn't explain away what happened next. A tragedy which remains the strangest unexplained mystery in the Brie X saga. On March 19th, not long after Freeport released its assay report, Michael de Guzman was summoned to Freeport's field office at Busang for questioning. By that point, Guzman had quite a bit to answer for. Freeport wanted to know why he had crushed his original drill core samples instead of splitting them so that a separate portion could be independently verified later. They wanted to know why his mineral assays had shown significant deposits of gold, while theirs had clearly shown nothing at all. And if they looked with a careful eye, they may have had questions about where the gold in his samples had come from in the first place. Though Guzman had long insisted the deposit at Busang was a volcanic diatreme, his samples didn't match up. Instead of the jagged edges one would expect to find in rocky drill core samples, this gold appeared smooth, like alluvial gold taken from a river. Then there was the matter of the mysterious fire, which destroyed all of his records. Guzman never got a chance to explain himself. Likely, he didn't want one. While riding a helicopter to the meeting with Freeport, Guzman suddenly fell out and dropped 800 feet, disappearing into the jungle below. 
The pilot was the only other person aboard, and he claims to not have seen what happened. All he could say was that one moment, Guzman was there. The next, he was gone. It took four days to find his body, and by then, it was nearly too late to identify him. The corpse had been partially consumed by wild pigs, mutilated beyond all recognition. Only dental records confirmed that it was Michael de Guzman. As soon as the news of his death got out, the geologists who worked under him at Busang sensed which way the wind was blowing. Nearly all of them disappeared, never to be heard from again. Any information they might have had about Guzman's tragic demise vanished with them. No one knows exactly what happened to Guzman, but the official report is that it was a suicide. According to a paper published in the journal Frontiers in Psychology, the key factor leading to suicide is unbearable mental pain. Other contributing factors include impulsiveness, poor decision-making, and a sense of thwarted belongingness. It seems clear that Guzman was suffering from unbearable mental pain. He had committed a major fraud and knew he would soon be exposed, which must have weighed heavily on him. It's entirely possible he chose suicide in order to escape the anguish he was suffering. Impulsiveness and poor decision-making may have also played a part in Guzman's fate. Jay Solomon of the Wall Street Journal thought that Guzman didn't set out to defraud the world. He really did believe there was gold at Busang. By Solomon's account, the geologist only salted the samples to get enough financing to extract the gold which he was convinced was there. Therefore, Guzman's sample salting could have been done on impulse, an imprudent shortcut to get the results he wanted. And, based on the fallout, it was clearly a poor decision. While it would be too much to say Guzman killed himself because of a sense of thwarted belongingness, an undercurrent of desire for acceptance and inclusion runs throughout the Briex scandal. Walsh, Felderhoff, and Guzman all wanted to belong to a community of successful prospectors. Greed was the primary motivation, of course. However, there was also a certain acclaim afforded to Briex in its heyday. Praise showered on a small mining company that had discovered the world's largest gold deposit. But their reputation had risen to such heights, it seemed the only way to go was down. For Guzman, suicide may have been a preferable alternative to his inevitable exposure as a charlatan. With his allegedly genius IQ, he would have despaired at the thought of becoming a laughingstock in the industry. A suicide would also explain why Richard Behar had found Guzman so grim and icy in Jakarta just before his death. Perhaps he knew the end was coming for him, one way or the other. Another possibility, however slim, is that Guzman was murdered. If he was the pawn of someone else, like Felderhoff or Walsh, then it could be that they had the pilot push Guzman out of that helicopter in an attempt to cover up the fraud. 
after burning down the administrative office and destroying the samples within, killing Guzman would have tied up the last loose end. And yet, it's also possible that Guzman never died at all. While dental records did report that the body was his, the corpse was badly mutilated. And strangely, the body seemed to have had its genitalia surgically removed. Reporter John Macbeth of the Far Eastern Economic Review had a possible explanation for this bizarre detail. His sources reported that a body had recently gone missing from a morgue in Samarinda, the town that Guzman had taken off from the day he died. Perhaps the missing body part had been removed at the morgue before the body was repurposed for a grisly setup. Further supporting this theory was the fact that, according to Macbeth, a pre-ex-geologist was the only person who identified the body as Guzman's. It's possible that this other geologist helped Guzman fake his own death. Finally, one of Guzman's five wives supposedly continued to receive checks in the mail after Guzman's demise. If this account is true, it seems exceedingly unlikely that the checks were signed and mailed by a corpse. But whether real or staged, Guzman's passing was the final nail in the coffin for Brie X. Up next, we'll find out how the Brie X scheme unraveled and who was ultimately left holding the bag. Now, back to the story. In March of 1997, in the wake of Freeport's damning report and the resulting rumors of fraud, Brie X teetered on the edge of ruin. Then, the company's project manager, geologist Michael de Guzman, took a fatal tumble out of a helicopter, which sent Brie X's stock into a freefall. Feeling the heat, on March 26th, Brie X acknowledged that it may have overestimated the value of Busang. From its peak at $286.50 per share just a few months earlier, Brie X stock plummeted to $2.50. About $3 billion disappeared within minutes. And it wasn't just Brie X that took a beating. Faith in all mining endeavors evaporated. So many mining company shares were sold off in the late March panic that the Toronto Stock Exchange's computers overloaded twice in one day. The final swing of the axe came in early May. After Freeport announced that they hadn't found gold at Busang, a third-party company, Strathcona Mineral Services, was brought in to perform their own analysis. Their report was the death knell for Brie X. Not only did they confirm Freeport's assessment that there wasn't an ounce of gold at Busang, they went on to condemn Brie X for perpetrating a fraud without precedent in the history of mining anywhere in the world. Confronted with this new evidence, Walsh performed a swift about-face. Initially, he had insisted that no fraud had taken place. 
but once Strathcona published its report, Walsh retreated to the Brex headquarters in Calgary, claiming he too had been taken in by the fraud, that he was just as much of a victim as anyone else. Later, Walsh fled to his luxurious estate in the Bahamas, which he had purchased with the money he made from the Brex scam. All the while, he continued to loudly declare his innocence. Felderhoff, meanwhile, ran off to the Cayman Islands and released a statement insisting that he was unaware of the mineral salting. These blanket denials did little to satisfy Brex's victims, and there were plenty of them. Many were ordinary, hard-working Canadians. The Ontario Municipal Employees Retirement Board lost $45 million. The Quebec Public Sector Pension Fund lost $70 million. And the Ontario Teachers' Pension Plan lost $100 million. The typical salary for a Canadian teacher at the time was about $50,000 a year. Many had their entire retirement savings wiped out thanks to Brex and all those analysts who promised the company was a sure bet. Furious at being swindled, they and other investors launched a salvo of civil class action lawsuits against Brex. Facing this onslaught, Brex declared bankruptcy in November 1997. Walsh resigned as chairman not long after, but for him, the worst was yet to come. At the end of May 1998, Walsh suffered a brain aneurysm. He was brought to Doctors Hospital in Nassau, where he lingered in a coma for a few days before passing away at the age of 52. Up until the very end, he insisted he was unaware of the fraud and that he too was a victim. After Walsh's death, Felderhoff told The Globe and Mail, Although we did not always agree on every decision, I always believed that David was trying to do the utmost for the shareholders. The company Walsh founded, Brex, would shamble on for a few more years before dying out with a whimper. In the meantime, lawsuits were pending and investigations had been launched. With both Brex CEO David Walsh and project manager Michael de Guzman dead, only John Felderhoff was left to face the music. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police, Canada's National Law Enforcement Agency, concluded its investigation in 1999. After pursuing evidence and witnesses across Canada, Indonesia, the Philippines, the Cayman Islands, and the Bahamas, it determined that Brex had carried out an unprecedented conspiracy. First, it concurred that Brex's samples had indeed been salted, likely at a riverside warehouse, before being sent on to the testing lab. Second, it noted that Brex had publicly reassured investors that the size of Busang's gold deposit had been assessed by independent mining experts, such as the respectable Canadian engineering firm SNC-Lavalin. But the company failed to mention that those experts were only permitted to make their estimations based on the samples provided by Brex, which were, of course, salted. 
the Mounties were convinced that Bree X was guilty of fraud. However, they didn't press charges because they thought their evidence might not stand up in court. Further, securities laws at the time made it difficult to prove that Bree X had actually done anything illegal. Walsh, Felderhoff, and Guzman had made outrageously optimistic statements about the potential value of Busang, suggesting it was the largest gold deposit in the world. However, Canadian law did not hold them liable for the accuracy of such statements. Technically, only projections included in a company's formal prospectus were held up to such scrutiny. A prospectus is a document describing the major features of a business, so the potential investors may evaluate the venture. It typically includes investment objectives and strategies, risks, performance, pricing, and so forth. BreeX, then, was only responsible for what the company claimed in its prospectus. Anything said off the record, for example, that there was tens of millions of ounces of gold at Busang, was not liable to legal scrutiny. The only formal prospectus that Bree X was required to file was an inaugural one in 1989, when the company was first listed on the stock exchange. This was long before it had even done a single survey in Indonesia. The Mounties had their hands tied but there was one last hope for justice. The Ontario Securities Commission, or OSC, the most powerful of Canada's 13 regulatory commissions. In 1999, the OSC charged John Felderhoff with insider trading and illegally selling $84 million in shares. All civil lawsuits against Felderhoff were then placed on hold to await the outcome of the OSC case. The OSC came after Felderhoff with everything they had, but his lawyers put up a fierce defense. After seven years, 160 trial days, and 750,000 scanned images presented as evidence, John Felderhoff was acquitted of all charges in July 2007. According to Felderhoff's lawyers, the geologist had spent his fortune on legal fees and living expenses and had only $250,000 left to his name. By their account, Felderhoff had somehow managed to spend upwards of $70 million in a little over 10 years. With his assets apparently vanished, the remaining class action lawsuits against Bree X were dismissed by an Ontario judge the lawyers representing the victims had no money left to continue the fight. Though billions had been lost in the Briex scam, only $3.5 million in damages were ever recovered from the company. The judge overseeing the case ruled that splitting up the $3.5 million among Briex's investors was impractical, as most would only receive a fraction of a penny. Instead, the money was given to charity. 80% went to the Law Foundation of Ontario's Access to Justice Fund and 20% to the Telfer School of Business at the University of Ottawa. The teachers and municipal workers who lost their pensions got nothing. No one was convicted of a crime. 
In response to the Briex scandal and the subsequent failure to criminally prosecute the company, the Canadian Securities Administration introduced new regulations. These were intended to better protect investors and hopefully ensure a scandal like Briex never occurs again. But the effectiveness of those new measures is up for debate. In June 2011, Chinese company Sino Forest was the most valuable forestry company on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Their market capitalization of $6 billion was about the same as Briex's at its height, adjusted for inflation. Nine out of 10 analysts recommended a buy. But within months, Sino Forest had been exposed as a Ponzi scheme. And by March 2012, the company filed for bankruptcy. The Canadian press dubbed it Tree X. No matter the regulations put in place, scandals like Brie X will inevitably reoccur because the underlying cause of the fraud will always be with us. Greed. Greed is what sparked the initial fraud and fueled the wild speculation that drove up Briex's shares. Walsh, Felderhoff and Guzman all wanted to get rich. But while the Briex executives should rightly be blamed for the fraud they perpetuated, it must be noted that their scheme could not have reached such dizzying heights without analysts and investors buying into it. Everyone involved wanted to believe Briex would make them rich. The legend of the Brie X scandal has lived on in various ways. To this day, Brie X stock certificates can be bought in Toronto novelty shops as souvenirs. In 2016, a feature film based on Brie X was released. The movie was called Gold and starred Matthew McConaughey with Stephen Gagan directing. For unspecified legal reasons, the character names were changed and a fictitious company replaced Brie X. John Felderhoff, for his part, stayed away from the spotlight. After the company went under, Felderhoff moved to the Philippines, where he ran a convenience store. In 2019, he died of natural causes at age 79. Sigmund Freud offers a suitable epitaph to the tale of Brie X. In his article, Character and Anal Erotism, he wrote, Wherever archaic modes of thought have predominated or persist, in the ancient civilizations, in myths, fairy tales, and superstitions, money is brought into the most intimate relationship with dirt. We speak of dirty money and might call someone filthy rich. In many cultures, it is impolite to discuss money at all. Many of us may instinctively realize that it is difficult to become rich without causing someone, somewhere, to suffer. Or maybe money still often feels unclean because, for thousands of years, gold has been dug out of the dirt. Perhaps the final lesson to take from the Brie X scandal is that you can't get rich, really rich, without getting your hands dirty.
Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Con Artists was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Josh Kern. This episode of Con Artists was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden. Listener.